mean, what's the point? You don't need a mace. You don't use it. Am I right, guys? Like, <laughs> if you if you've got a wall full of weapons that Ryan Johnson steals for his movie twenty years later. I didn't realize that it was a direct ripoff. I had no clue <laughs> that it was so, so similar. It's all I could think of while I watched the walks. Is the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. That's all only thing I could think of. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it, did he it, like? Is there like a, a a payment to the estate here? Uh, oh right. Of, like, what's going on? I don't get it. We'll, we'll have to dive into that for sure. Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, we have two special guests today. We have the Mikes uh, from Forgotten Cinema. Uh, Mikes, introduce yourself. Oh, hi, I'm Mike Field. <laughs> I'm Mike Butler. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your podcast, what it's all about. Uh, God, Butler, that's you. Uh, I know. <laughs> We're Forgotten Cinema, a podcast about forgotten films that seem to be forgotten by audiences, whether it be because a more popular movie was released at the same time, or the film simply didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. We'll discuss what we love about the movie, maybe don't love about it, but we always recommend people revisit it. You never know, you might find your own forgotten gem. And that is our podcast. That's the byline. Yeah. I love it. That's, a good one. That's really good. Uh, this and, is a, uh, we're, we're doing uh, a series or a cycle, I guess we're calling it, on existential thrillers. Uh, and, but this one seems perfect for you guys because we're doing, uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer 1977 as our main film seems pretty darn forgotten, right? We did this, uh, season one. So that's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's right in our wheelhouse. <laughs> exactly. uh, and it just recently, it's been out of print for how long, right? It's been out of print for forever and just recently came back on a DVD, whatever, 4k Blu-ray thing. I don't know, like a few years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, it's gotten a lot of love uh, lately. I think people it really come it has. A, yeah, it's it's had a really strong second life, and I was noticing uh, its letterbox score is higher than The Exorcist or French Connection. It's, it, it, yeah, you know, I don't. That doesn't pretty surprise high. me. It's pretty hot. <laughs> uh, so I did. I, I didn't choose this, Chris. Did you choose this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I grabbed tell us this about one. it. Tell us about your choice. Well, I yeah, I was pretty obsessed with The Exorcist growing up as a normal child would be. And uh, so obviously that brought me to French Connection. And this is like, you know, the late 90s. Um, I'm a you know, preteen exploring the depths of the library's VHS and just starting to burgeon DVD collection. And uh, yeah, William Friedkin was immediately like, okay, he's, he's made two incredible films. And I think we have a, a slight dissent of opinion when it comes to French Connection between you and I, Dan. Is that correct? Wait, what's, wait, what's your opinion on French Connection? Have we brought this up before? I feel <laughs> I, like I'm I, getting cornered here. This is like okay. a surprise. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I do here. But you, I, I mean, I think it's a pretty perfect, tight no, action crime no. film. No. Okay. Yeah. 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 No. That's well. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I had, you know, obviously learned about Friedkin's filmography, but Sorcerer, at least back then, was just kind of a footnote, um, both in terms of Friedkin's filmography and just like '70s cinema in general. But then there was some kind of reevaluation in uh, of that entire decade of cinema, especially auteur cinema of the '70s, and uh, it. it 
it's been on my radar for a few years. I think it was 2014, 2015. Um, Friedkin put out his autobiography and uh, was also in the midst at that time, at, at that time, at that time <laughs> <laughs> of trying to, 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 to revive Sorcerer's reputation. And there were tons of film critics that were, you know, behind him on it 100%. Mm. And so I don't know. I think it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, I didn't even realize what it was actually about. I didn't even know that it was a remake of Wages of Fear, probably until I actually remembered the film when we came up with this concept of the existential thriller um, for this season. And I dug into it, and then I just like got more and more amped. And I I bit the bullet, uh, as I have done a couple times now for this show. And it's just like, I, I've read so much about this movie, I I feel like it can't not live up to expectations. So I bought that uh, new restored Blu-ray and it's ridiculously amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. It's beautiful, huh? <laughs> so where did you, was this part of, uh, when was the first season of Forgotten Cinema, Mike's? Uh, probably, we did, this started May 2019. So it was okay. probably around yeah. there, yeah, like May, June, uh, when we when it came out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorcerer's, uh, uh, Sorcerer's funny because you watch it and you don't realize that you're an hour in and you're like totally engrossed in the film. It like, yeah. it's, it, it creeps up on you and you're just like, all right, let me give it a shot. And it starts off slow and you get every, all the vignettes, but it cu- just locks into you. And you're just like, you're like, when they're on that bridge, you cannot, you're like at the edge of your seat trying to <laughs> try open that they get across. Um, and it's, uh, I always say that Sorcerer's biggest Biggest crime was coming out a month after Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, when Star Wars came out, everything changed, and the, the expectation of of film uh, in that time was was different. And a movie like Sorcerer didn't have a chance. Yeah, that's just it's just bad timing. Is that it? I mean, it's also seemed oh, like whoa, no, there's well, what's one of it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. title, the title. <laughs> Why? It was funny because I saw this on the list. I had no idea what this was. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know what the sorcerers have to do with existential, like, noir thriller <laughs> things, but I guess I'm in for it. But, like, yeah, I mean, the title is, you know, obviously, and that's been stated as, like, an issue. I, do we think a title can really screw it up this much? I mean, there's so much hype for this movie. I, like, I will say the first time I heard of this movie was uh, I saw that Roy Scheider was in a movie called Sorcerer. And I was like, no way. This guy does a medieval times, like, fantasy <laughs> epic. Yeah. yeah. And I had to look it up and I went, wait, he's in a truck with his dynamite? <laughs> is there like a, an ancient like guy who thinks he knows stuff? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a truck. Just a truck. Just a <laughs> name on a truck. That's all it is. Um, uh, amazing. We're so let's uh, let's do the thing where we read the IMDb logline and uh, pick it apart and talk about the origins. Um, back when you know Friedman was hot off of both French Connection and Exorcist and came up with this idea of reimagining. Um, the French classic Wages of Fear, which at that point had, wasn't even 20 years old yet. What is the uh, logline for Sorcerer? It's not anything to do with Merlin or <laughs> robes or anything like that. What is it, Dan? A uh, gangster, a crooked banker, and a hitman. Oh, wait, and an Arab terrorist, sorry. Uh, are stranded on the, and on the run in a small village in South America. Their only chance of escape is to drive two trucks filled with unstable dynamite up a long and rocky mountain road in order to plug an escalating oil refinery blaze. That, I mean, it's, it, it is what it is, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the entire movie in, you know, two sentences. 
but wow. I mean, how did you, how does somebody like thinking about it back then, I guess it was a super different period of making films and he had two massive hits before this, but how would you have that log on and be like, yeah, here you go, buddy. Here's a lot of money. Like fly down to Dominican Republic. I think where they filmed it. Just go for it. Spend $2 million to build that bridge scene, like build it once, then build it again somewhere else. Uh, how does that happen? You guys think, is that just because of the, the time period? where he was so hot and you know he was the solo director genius who knew everything uh so they just sort of wrote him a check and said yeah that works or do you guys think because it was a remake that there's an established sort of you know strong narrative going on here how did this thing get made do y'all think his his past work he's obviously a a hot director and and the 70s are 70s are a different time it's really difficult to 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 understand cinema before the blockbuster yeah. uh, came about. And, and because these are the type of films you, you would get or freaking style films or, you know, movies like, you know, three days of the condor, like these are the type of movies yeah. you got in the seventies. And mm-hmm. though that's before, you know, the blockbuster before jaws, before star Wars, before the blockbuster became the thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think more where onus was given to directors like freaking back then now, not so much. You look back at it now and you know, freaking can't get work <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if he wants yeah. to do this. So yeah. I think that that has a lot to just the perception of uh, a director and auteur back then was just greater than it is now. Yeah. I think there was uh that's, I mean, the, the short answer of it. I think the other question to it though, that is, was really like boggling my mind upon first watch. And also upon reflection is like compare three days of the condor or any other like weirdo seventies paranoia thriller. Um, it's all very like American centric Mm -hmm. or like government centric, but here it's like not only anti-heroes or, you know, just straight up bad guys. Uh, but only one of them is American Mm -hmm. and like Roy Scheider is like the only recognizable Hollywood name and he doesn't even show up for like mm. until he's the last vignette. Right. Yeah. Man, that's um, prologue. So what is like, <laughs> that, that's insane to me. Like I, I, I remember sitting the first half hour of the film and just like wondering, like, how was this like a wide, like no wonder it was DOA in the American box office. Well, the thing, it wasn't DOA technically like it had like a huge, there was huge hype around it. Because, you know, it's Friedkin, like it's a, his sure, new movie, sure. like there is, you know, I think it's just the film itself did not, for whatever reason, it didn't click with people. And obviously the Star Wars has a huge uh, part of that. Um, but I mean, like, you know, you're watching the movie now and we're, we're viewing it through, you know, we're all film nerd bros. Like we see this <laughs> thing, we're like, yeah, we're in for the weirdness and the ride of it. But can you imagine being just a typical... You know, I think about an MCU lover now just goes to those movies and like goes to see this. Like, are they going to be like going to walk out? You know, yeah. <laughs> like what's, what's I, li- gonna I like to think about like a young MCU person, like with Sam Raimi coming back to Marvel characters <laughs> and then like digging into Raimi's like earlier films. That's got to be a mind fuck. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the, what's the journey then? Uh, there's a quote from Friedrich Friedkin when it like comes to like his own personal passion project of taking weight, which is a fear is, and this was kind of the big departure from that original French film is that he wanted to give those four guys, the four truck drivers, um, this, this 
you know, a la- not, I don't know about elaborate, but like a very solid backstory that that entire like origin story of how did they get to the South American town? And I haven't seen uh, Wages of Fear in years, but to my recollection, and this is, and that's kind of what set me up for um, maybe not the best expectations going in is I had, I had thought that sorcerer would be like, you know, at least 70, 75%, you know, truck ride thrills. And <laughs> especially with freaking who's known for like keeping, uh, keeping the pace, even though he's also really good about creating backstory. But what was, uh, what's that would, that's another kind of thought that a lot of people had, including critics that adore the film is like, um, who's going to want to stick with this film? You had mentioned earlier, Mike, about how it's like, you, you're not quite sure, and I agree, I wasn't quite sure either why I was interested in following the trajectory of these men's lives as they kind of are forced to, like, this is the bottom of their barrel, is to wind up in the South American town. Um, but that's another reason I'd imagine it didn't connect with audiences, right? Is like, why would we care about it? They're basically, they're all goons given yeah. a spotlight. <laughs> Yeah. Why do? Yeah. Why? Why should you? I mean, now the antihero is so popular. Like it's so sure. good to 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 like the bad guy because you know. But now, back then, uh, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe they couldn't they couldn't connect. Something that came up. I, I was curious what you guys thought. Something that came up uh, on a. We did the episode uh, tw- uh, 2010. Uh, yeah. The the year we made contact. That also has Roy Scheider. Do you think? Oh, yeah. Roy, do you think Roy Scheider, that type of actor, would be a leading man? in today's <laughs> cinema. Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. But he's awesome. But, but, yeah. but you know he's, what I mean? Yeah. I think he's perfect for this film, even though Freakin said it was like, what do you say? It was like the worst casting decision of his he life. Didn't, he didn't like him, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> he wanted, what, Steve McQueen. Yeah, which yeah. would have been cool, but still, yeah. But Steve McQueen totally wouldn't work. I don't think he would have worked in this. I think He's not a goon. He's a lead. No, yeah. he's yeah. too, yeah. You, you believe that he can be a good guy on some level, whereas right. Roy... I believe Roy can be a bad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he's got it in him to be, but he's the, he, I don't know. I think it really, it really works in this film to have him as, you know, one of the lead. I mean, he's technically a lead, but he's, you know, it's an ensemble to some degree, but no, I think he works really well here. What do you guys yeah. think? I think that one of the things that works in this film that today that maybe didn't work back then is the fact that everybody wants to watch a car wreck. Yeah. But you don't want to watch somebody nice get wrecked. You want to watch somebody who kind of deserves it. So yeah. you're like excited to watch like who's going to blow up next. Oh, is it going to blow up? You don't want to be like, oh, man, I don't want this guy who's like a father of three and he's a nice guy and he was just set up by his best friend. You don't want like a, a, a Richard Kimball from The Fugitive vibe. You want no. this guy who shot up a church and flipped a car like 80 times who should have been dead in that car wreck. And you're like, well, this time the car is going to get you, sucker. Like yeah, you kind of yeah. want him to survive, but you also don't mind if maybe there's a huge explosion right. at the end. And it, it uh, that's what that works the stakes now. too, right? Is like, right, exactly. You know, it's very possible that he could like it wouldn't ruin the plot of the film. It would make sense. Oh, on before a they even level. before they even go over the bridge, that first scene where there's just like the muddy cliff and it's just the shot of the tires, just that close up of the tires, the yeah. cinematography. I'm just like, oh yeah, blow up. No, don't blow up. Wait, maybe blow up. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like keeps you on the edge of your seat watching just these close ups of these tires, and it should be like boring, but it's not because you know the stakes. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you're not really like sad about maybe who goes. You're just like, oh yeah, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what do what do we? I the one thing that going back to the prologue thing, I, I you know, I felt the prologue to me, which is a big change from Wages of Fear, right? It's pretty different. 
I don't know. To me, it, it it somehow took me out of the flow of the movie, and I couldn't figure out who I was supposed to be attached to. Hmm. Uh, and me and Chris talk about this. I'm like obsessed with like genre conventions and stuff like this. Like I need my <laughs> hand held throughout a movie. Uh, <laughs> did you guys feel like that was like did that hurt the hurt the story and the narrative of it, or did it somehow enhance it? The prologues. Well, I mean, they're different. They're different criminals. They're different types types of criminals. You know, one's uh, mm-hmm. like the French guy was he a fraud. He was he was he was embezzling funds. You know, so that's you know white collar crime. Then you have obviously the Palestinian who blows up the the church. Did he blow? Is that, is that what he like blew a up? Bank, I think something like that. Yeah, yeah killed all those yeah. people. I mean, and then you know the obviously you have the one who is who's the the assassin who like clearly is just like you know i'm evil that's it and i don't care um I, I, there's different levels i guess so i guess yeah. may kind of who you're rooting for and the fact that you know mike alludes to the dude that um the french guy who you knew he was gonna die as soon as he showed the watch right? <laughs> yeah. 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 but um you know if the fact that he goes you know he's you know the, nobody's safe because you would think that if any of them was you could try to I guess connect with any of them. Maybe you could connect with the white collar crime because it's not as violent as the others. Right. But you know the fact that he goes, I guess all bets are off. Even though it does come later on in the in the in the movie. So yeah. Uh, but I, I don't I don't mind the the vignettes. I I, I kind of like I, like I said, uh, this movie just kind of creeps up on you, and I I was all in even when they're like just in squalor in South, yeah. in South America. Yeah. The it's best just, lives. Right. And you're just, I'm just kind of like, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah. There's definitely like a, an othering to it that made it yeah. super fascinating because like you, you, once again, they're, they're essentially sidekick characters put in front, uh, front and center of the camera. And so I very much felt like that lingering anxiety to it all, just like constant wondering. And so then that almost, for me anyways, made it even more uh, impactful when the actual like stakes started getting raised. Like mm-hmm. the whole idea of, you know, you, you don't really, cause they didn't have anything left to lose. Right. It's like the, the, the whole idea of the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. And so like, of course, these are the guys that are going to, and along with several other, you know, it's almost like, it's like, like the training montage of their auditions for who's going to become the truck drivers. And, <laughs> and you know it's going to be your four guys from the vignettes, but they also still play with that whole idea, like uh, uh, with expect, playing with your expectations. So it's like, it's just like a, a, uh, a balance. And once again, it goes to that, like that film bro kind of <laughs> mentality where it's like, it's okay if it's a little boring, if it's going to make that thrill scene that much more uh intense later on right so do you do you think this is do you think this film is probably more for uh film aficionados than the casual film uh film buff yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah like it definitely it just it has like an uh, i don't know, like an acquired taste or something mm-hmm. yeah you have to be willing to like go with it because it, it's just a, yeah the pacing's abnormal uh, the story is not very straightforward in terms of like what your your typical thriller plot's going to be. Uh, there really isn't a protagonist per se. I mean, obviously it's Roy to some degree, but yeah, it's there's some difficult parts about it that I think because of those difficult parts, that's why it's become beloved by film because it's like mm-hmm. it, it tests you in ways, and then it does deliver. I think 
it gives you something for for that test but i think yeah i, I like i wouldn't recommend this you know to a random person like oh there's this great movie that you've never heard of before and <laughs> right uh right. check it out they're gonna be like what the hell was that <laughs> it seems <laughs> to be a lot of confusion you know so we're saying we're film snobs that's what we're saying here <laughs> oh, yeah. i would never deny that we're Don't podcasting right. on a tuesday night come on <laughs> yeah. i'm pro- fine don't like sorcerer we love it <laughs> <laughs> i would um, say though that like uh because I'm always thinking about how I teach high school students film and uh, I'm always thinking about like the clips that I can show to kind of set up. And I think that anybody uh, could like look just at that truck scene, even without the context that comes before it and just look at, you know, how it's shot and how it's staged and even how it's acted. I mean, the close-ups on these actors, they end up really being an effective just basic example of uh how to do suspense and it's it's something that is actually really difficult to do i think without having some kind of like shock and awe effect and yeah you've got the shock and awe effect of uh you know the explosion but especially with the bridge scene there's like there the the there's no there doesn't end up being an explosion so it's that the whole uh, playing with anticlimax too, that is really impressive, and I think could be you know stacked alongside uh, any given scene from Jaws or Hitchcock film. Oh yeah, the editing in that scene is awesome, and the bridge yeah. scene that's fantastic. Yeah, Especially it's... knowing like what went into it and what they had to change and and do and how they had to shoot it. Right. There's this uh, um, quote from Friedkin uh, when he was doing a press circuit around the the release of the Blu-ray. And he, he went into a lot more detail than he ever had before about uh, shooting that scene. He said, in order to disguise the fact that it was not this enormous rushing river I had hoped for, we decided to bring in rain machines and only film when it was overcast. There's a sense you can't tell how high the river is because we concealed it. I used three or four cameras from various positions. The fact that I could change the angle really took the audience's mind off the fact that this was not the rushing river. Like It's all just like this perfect exercise in constraints and limitations and framing and composition in addition to like you said the editing and the 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 perfectly timed cuts and everything from like the the snap and the audio design too the the Mm -hmm. trees the tree branches snapping uh along with the Mm -hmm. rushing river and never knowing what where it's coming from on any given end and that's part of the the blu-ray restoration too is the uh the 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 surround that probably is was lost a lot in the translation of like vhs releases and why it probably didn't have a shelf life like um, Exorcist or French Connection did the tow cable when they used it, yes, yes. especially especially when they gave so much attention to them putting the tow cable on the truck when they did that. You talk about that montage when they're putting the trucks together, um, you know that that tow cable and then that the that little the Y shaped uh, tree branch that was kept moving forward or mm-hmm. it, it was just yeah you're right it's 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 all it's it's almost i'm not gonna say i mean i'm not i'll never say a movie's perfect but that seems near perfect <laughs> yeah that, that seems yeah. near perfect yeah and it, it, the thing about it too is it, it seems real mm-hmm. they seem like they're in real trouble right right and it's like mm-hmm. it, it also goes to like the the vision and like just iron will of friedkin to get what he wanted mm-hmm. like yeah this thing it costs two million dollars that single scene in three months to do mm. like that's nuts like like what's the average film shoot now it's like 25 to 30 days right 
So he took three times that amount just for a single scene. Now we can revel in it and be like, oh, it's amazing. And I think that it obviously is, but like it, it was of its time so much because you could never, is there anything like the equivalent, maybe the Northmen parts of the Northmen are kind of similar where it's like, this guy's nuts. Like he's just going to go for it. I mean, you guys, could you envision anybody doing that today? In a padded green screen room, maybe. But right. That's about yeah. It. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so. I mean, it's, it had to be incredibly unsafe. They say that it was safe. I don't believe it. you watch that. There's no way that was oh, safe. No, they're covering their ass. <laughs> that's the best kind of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Just right yeah. On the edge. Risk your lives for my entertainment. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the 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 funny kind of uh, details that I came across in research in this. I don't know if you guys knew about it. Uh, Forgotten Cinema was. Um, that uh, because they were shooting in the Dominican Republic uh, at, in the 70s when it was largely like shadow controlled by billionaire industrialist mm-hmm. Charlie Bloodhorn, uh, that uh, <laughs> okay, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, where yeah. he had a picture, he needed a picture for a background shot of quote unquote rapacious oil mo- moguls. <laughs> and uh, so that there was like some kind of, you know, tenuous connection to the nameless, faceless villains of the, uh, of, of the, the unnamed, or is it named South American Island? Or at least the neighborhood is named. Ah, um, uh, they call it something. Yeah. It, it's yeah. It's blanking on me, but they call it something. <laughs> but they had a Gulf and Western board report um, sheet just there because it's the Dominican Republic and uh, the, and that's um, the Bloodhorns uh, conglomerate. Uh, and then when they sc- so then they had to screen the footage uh, because Gulf and Western owned Paramount and Bloodhorn saw it. He was in that initial production screening. And uh, the quote that Zan Brooks from The Guardian had is that uh, um, he had what was called, quote, a shit hemorrhage. <laughs> in response to seeing like his face and his company right there like they also funded the movie and you know the exploitation of and probably deaths of so many laborers yeah. in that part of the part of the world um, well, he was fighting with them for a while he was fighting yeah. during the movie yeah he well they was, like didn't he wanted to after the test screening i think they uh they're like hey this is not doing well <laughs> test screening and then, like, freaking's like, I need more money to go shoot stuff. They're like, no. <laughs> absolutely not. And that, that's actually one of the reasons why it did fail. I forgot about this, is that they pulled marketing from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they pulled marketing and are like, hey, this, is, this isn't this is going to go anywhere, so we're just going to dump it. Um, and it's too bad. I mean, the, the whole shoot sounds like, it reminds me a lot of the stories you hear from, like, Heaven's Gate or, like, Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Like it's it was Geraldo. Com- yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, exactly. It was completely nuts. Like people getting gangrene and like malaria. Um, I don't know. Like it's do you feel like that does that come through that dedication? I, I feel like it does, like what he got on screen. Like that just absolute m- maniacal um sort of <laughs> doggedness to get yeah. what he wanted. Oh, I mean, sure. to the point where it's almost hard to reconcile, right? Like, luckily, Ooh, there's yeah. no documented, you know, uh, that we know of, yeah, that we know of, yeah. right? Yeah. Or that that's, you know, <laughs> I mean, after you know a couple hours of googling, can't find <laughs> anyways. Um, unlike movies like Fitzcarraldo and other film sets, where that were like notoriously dangerous and deadly mm-hmm. um, for so many. But I mean, if he really did manage to like 
you know, keep everybody alive. <laughs> On the one hand, it's like, yeah, no, that's, no gain. Is that's that a low saying? bar. But I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's hard to it's it's really hard to reconcile um, for me as you know a guy watching it. You know, so several decades removed, and also you know with the privilege of being an American that had no like connection to uh you know exploited workers um but it's i mean who knows i that's the other thing you talk about like who could get away with something like this nowadays it's just like straight up you would think that there would be protections in place but then when we see what happened on the the set of the alec baldwin movie so yeah i mean there's I mean, freaking was also i forget what movie it was probably french connection they were shooting live guns on set Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So it's like he's, yeah, he's, he's pretty fast and loose with a lot of these rules. Right. But it's, it almost reminds me, we had a conversation about like Last House on the Left on uh, mm-hmm. our last mm-hmm. cycle on self aware horror. And it kind of reminds me of that. Like that was so gonzo and probably unsafe uh, and put like actors in really terrible situations, especially the women actors in that movie. And it's like, oh man, like I, like I, I, I love what he captured on film, but you can just feel the grittiness of it. Yeah. Like every sort of, you know, it's like the sweat is just there on their faces and every, every scene, the thriller part of it does, does feel authentic. It does feel like everybody is really unsafe and just on the edge. Um, I mean, did you, the last half of it, did anybody here like lose interest or you guys are like locked in, right? Oh no! I was I was oh, all, all in, all the way in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was all. In. And and the name of the town is Porvenir. There you go. I figured. Thank it out. you. I found Thank it. you. Yes, yeah. it was bothering me. <laughs> which is which is completely made up, correct? Of, yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be in, in Colombia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like this guy yeah. got an arsonist from Queens to help blow up his tree because he couldn't do it right. Like he oh just got God. a ton of explosives and just like, yeah, go ahead, do what you want. Uh, yeah. Like candy to a uh, an explosives expert. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of runs into like Tropic Thunder a little bit, just like right. really off the <laughs> off the rails. Um, here's okay. I, I have a question that I got to ask you guys because I, I was watching the first part of this movie, and I'm like, there's a basic plot point here that I just can't wrap my head around. So the uh, the dynamite has like been sitting out for a long time and super unstable, and if you move it a little bit, it'll blow up. Why would you put it in a truck? that's going to like go over mountains and like, does that not track to you guys? Why don't you just put in a helicopter and fly it there? Uh, I think it, the, they talk about that. Don't they, they mentioned s- it. Yeah. That's too, it's too shaky. And plus he doesn't want to risk the lives of men that are valuable to him. Right. So he, that's what the whole, he, he knows that these people in town are just, you know, they're, they're just they're, like, they're whatever. For a reason. Yeah. They're yeah. expendable. Yeah. Casualties um, of capitalism. I love, I love when they're checking the dynamite and how cool and calm the guy is with the nitroglycerin. He just right. walks out of the tank. He's like, all right. So it's just all exploding. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few um, different points like that and speak kind of sidebar, but since you brought up that scene yeah. where it's like the, we cut to seemingly random characters that have yet to be introduced. And it, it's very, it's like this in medias res thing that freaking does at like yes. a few different points throughout this movie. And especially because mm-hmm. you're set up with those four different vignettes at the beginning. I mean, especially if you didn't know they were coming, uh, it's pretty jarring. And, but then like, it's also really exciting because then as soon as the nitroglycerin 
like you start like putting the ele- like the, the the equation together in your head and you're like oh okay so they're going to get those guys to and it it adds i think yes it's narratively maybe not as straightforward but that's kind of part of the fun of being able to play with the structure of um a thriller i mean it's you're not going to really capture or really get those authentic thrills if you're not also like going against the grain and being subversive not only with your subject matter but also with how you tell the story yeah, Freakin's asking you to trust him when, he, yeah. when he's doing that. And, and you know, it's whether you decide to, like, if you believe, if you like, if you're a big Freakin fan and, and you like his movies, you know, you're rather, you know, he's saying, like, you know, you know I'll, we'll get there, trust me, but this is the way to get there. So it's, it's, it, it, there is a level of trust there between the filmmaker and the, and the viewer. Uh, what do we think about, uh, you know, his sort of traditional, very flat, almost documentary style here? I feel like it, it works a lot, although he does abandon it in like the last 20 minutes, especially as it's just um, just Roy left, essentially, with his wounded uh, com- companion. I found that a little jarring the last 20 minutes compared to yeah. what he had filmed before. Uh, I was like the exact I was opposite. Like, this I was is in, a different... Like the last 20 minutes, I was like, this is what I had asked for. This is what <laughs> this I <laughs> you son of a it's bitch. It's definitely still interesting. You're still watching it, but you're like, this is a different film all of a sudden. This is like yes. very yeah. different. Well, uh, but I think the documentary aspect really helps in terms of like the truck driving and, and getting those yeah. reactions and making it more visceral uh, for the audience, putting them in the seats of what's going on. And I think the the reason that that popped into my head a little bit is just because, you know, this cycle is existential thrillers. And, you know, from the thriller perspective, Sorcerer is like obviously top notch, especially the last hour. It's like textbook, how you make a thriller. The existential part, um, that's a, a one element of this where I kind of struggled a bit. And the reason I think was because of freaking sort of the flatness and the documentary style, we get a little bit of backstory, but our backstory is always external plot of the character doing something. We don't get a lot of their internal feelings or what they're up to or what they're feeling. Um, what do you guys think? Like, uh, I think I probably missed a through line there when I was watching it. Like, is there more there about what the characters are feeling about themselves, what they want? Uh, you know, what's the sort of self-reflection that's going on in this, in this movie? There's one scene in, uh, the vignette about the French banker that stood out to me, um, right away. Because obviously I'm looking, since I know we're talking about, you know, this existential type of thriller where it's not just about the suspense, but also about, like, protagonists that are dealing with some kind of crisis of identity. And um, it's the banker talking to his wife uh, about this uh, book that she's editing in the hotel room. And she basically is very much affected by this book. It's a nonfiction account of a soldier, uh, like committing murder, um, on the battlefield. And the French banker's reaction to that is, you know, very, once again, it's that, that classic, very, you know, indicative of the rest of the movie, flat delivery and reaction to, well, that's, that's a soldier's job. That's what a soldier does. Like they're going to extinguish lives and they know their life may very well be extinguished. And then he himself winds up 
in that position, not necessarily as the soldier of a country, but like essentially barely hanging on trying to survive because he knows that he would be dead or in prison if he didn't, you know, escape to this squalor. And essentially that's, you know, the, what brings all those four guys together is that same kind of crisis of maybe not asking who am I, but asking like, do, do I deserve to have a life? Because they basically have succumbed to this idea that they don't until they have this chance to, you know, hit it big and get a decent paycheck. Maybe not to, you know, get out of uh, Pervenir, but at least to, you know, be able to pay off their debts or maybe move to the next town over and get a, a manual labor job that's a little more on the level, right? Like, that seemed very apparent just in, like, the mechanics of the plot, if not in any kind of, like, internal monologue or narration or, you know, deep uh, dialogue con connections with other characters. Uh, yeah, I think this is the last place that they can they can go. This is their... There's no... Uh, they'd, they'd be lying to themselves that they can leave Porvenir, but as you know, at the end of the movie, they, no one can. Um, they, no, you know, you're just not going to leave this place. Whether, mm -hmm. you know, I think that maybe this is, you, you could get, if you can get really deep and say that this is a, a glimmer of hope for them uh, to, to take this chance. But, you know, like I said, as it ends, it, it, that, that hope is a fallacy because they're never going to leave this place. Nobody leaves poor veneer. Didn't I say in our episode, Mike, that it's like, this is hell? Yeah. I think you could definitely like it's just a cyclical yeah. thing. Like it's just they're they're doing the same thing, gonna do the same thing over and over, trying to escape. Yeah. It's essentially their hell. If and, not uh, hell, one step closer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or a purgatory of some yeah. kind. Which I think is uh there's a great video essay by Scout DeFoya for uh RogerEbert.com on his uh, uh series called The Unloved. And there's like so many uh very easily missed um uh pieces of imagery that very much, you know, recall this kind of like, if you look at it specifically, and I think the huge thing we haven't mentioned yet is the Tangerine Dream score that adds yeah. to that kind of ethereal quality where you could easily look at it as a much more poetic film than it kind of looks maybe on upon first watch where it's, you get kind of really uh, aggressively, uh, shown this documentary style, but I think Roy Schotter's eyes also <laughs> say a lot. <laughs> I think that's a that that's another reason he works so well is because he can say so much with so little. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the yeah, it is interesting to me because that that twenty minute scene where he's hallucinating to me like that's where mm. it becomes very yes. that's where it comes existential. Like he's losing his sense of self literally. And it, like we're seeing it on screen, it's not some distant thing. We're subjective. We're in his viewpoint. We're feeling it with him. Then it does become that's where it comes, you know, very cerebral. And you're yeah. like, this is this is the end. It, it, it's odd because it felt like this is the end for him. He makes it, and there's that sense of relief. But then there's obviously the final gunshot. We're like, oh, he never. Yeah, he never gets out, right? But right. it's like, is there some sort of triumph in that? And like completing this hopeless, impossible mission, even though he ends up dying, is there some sense of like optimism or success in doing that? 
Do you think he knew that he would never, even though at the end in that bar when he asked her to dance, do you, do you think he was just waiting for the other shoe to drop? Like he knew he wasn't going to leave? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think he, he always knew that like there. this is... He's from he's the underbelly. Doomed. The moment the, the priest was shot in the... In the the assault on the robbery he knew it was over mm-hmm. yeah um and uh yeah i mean that, that's the kind of cool part to this whole movie because it's kind of like and that goes to like not to get too philosophical here but like true existentialism that's sort of the common usage of like yeah we're all doomed right yeah. like no matter what we do we're gonna die <laughs> and it's like what are you gonna do with the time that you have or in the situation that you're in to sort of do something great or do something bold to feel that sense of like being alive. Do you feel like he's feeling alive at the end or is he just in complete misery? I think he's just waiting for the, like I said, the, the shooter drop. I think yeah. he's just like, it's coming whether he, whether even if he was going to get off the Island or get out of the town, yeah. he was going to meet, he was going to meet up with his inevitability. And maybe that's what those him, you know, at the end hallucinating and just almost coming to a realization that this is all for nothing. Yeah. This is just delaying the inevitable. Or maybe he doesn't want to. He doesn't want absolution. He doesn't want to be forgiven. That's the other interesting point is the whole reason those guys are there is because they can't stay in society. And yet they're so, after spending so much time here, they're like, I got to go back. Yeah. They're all going to die if they go back. That's the whole point. So they're all fighting for something. They're all fighting for their own death, essentially. Yeah. Mm. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I like that. <laughs> Why can't they just chill out there and just have a good life? You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean that money's gonna go a long way. Uh, Somebody should point. recut it where all four of them survive and then create like a little friend group at that bar. <laughs> well, if this if this was you know if this was an uh, MCU film, I'm sure there we you know their deaths would be off screen and there would be a new show, do Disney Plus show for each all four of them. Yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> I, mean, I need the origin story. I need yeah. the previous forty years of their life and thirteen series on Disney. Serrano, Plus. the early years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, should we talk about our Chaser film, uh, Death Trap? I didn't know anything about this one, Chris. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it. what? What? Why? Why? Tell me why. <laughs> Why did you do this to me? Um, I've always had um, a soft spot for films that are essentially plays, whether like literally based on them or could essentially be shot like plays. Um, I also thought this was an interesting connective tissue to Sorcerer since Friedkin, you know, at least attempted to have a comeback uh, in the 2000s with Bug, which is another uh, thriller yeah. very much based on and is filmed like a play. Um, and uh, there's, there's something I, I had seen bits and pieces of this movie on probably TV, TNT or TBS growing up edited version. And uh, so like, I knew the basic plot of it, but there were so many pieces of it that I didn't know. And when I like read about, I got reminded that it was mentioned in the celluloid closet, which is one of the best documentaries ever about um, the history of film and specifically like gay subtext in film over the course of the evolution of the industry. Um, And also just like Christopher Reeve, um, who (laughs) when he's not Superman. So like I was, I, I was pretty sold that I wanted to, to actually watch this unedited for the first time all the way through. And, uh, it's not, my my initial reaction is it's not great, but I had a lot of fun with the first two acts. Mike, so have you guys seen this before? No, uh, I I wanted to, 
um, yeah. for a while, and we had done an episode uh, last year, right, Butler? We did Sleuth. We did Sleuth, yeah. And, yeah, okay. and, and this came mm-hmm. up because it's very similar. Uh, and obviously Michael Caine's in both crazy uh, sleuth vibes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but so, and so when you sent me the list of movies to choose, that's part of the reason why I chose it. That list was because, um, I wanted to see death trap and I wanted an excuse to see it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> awesome. So uh, this was the first time I, like I knew some stuff. Um, uh, I, I had seen clips, but I did not know, uh, that, you know, I didn't know too much about it going in. I knew nothing going in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Par for the course. <laughs> would you uh, this is kind of a forgotten film i think right i think so I oh mean, yeah yeah well, absolutely. i absolutely forgot like what happened to this thing like why did it not um, it made enough money like compared right, to its budget yeah. it was a hit yeah uh probably because christopher reeve is only known as superman for some people maybe that's mm-hmm. part of it maybe it's too similar to sleuth and other uh, other you know films of that ilk or maybe it's the kiss i didn't i was it's funny because i'm watching this you, you know, we're all watching this through 2022 eyes and yeah. I start reading the notes and I'm like, geez, people calm down. Everyone had a big problem with everything. I'm like, Oh my yeah, goodness. Christopher Reeve had to get like back out drunk in order to do it. Yeah. It's a small smooch. Come on guys. Yeah. yeah, what, I mean, yeah. Bizarre. I mean, that, that probably had something to do with, I guess. I mean, the, the play was absolutely massive. It was like one of the best um, running plays on Broadway. So yeah. you would think that this would just have more, I don't know cashier or something it just doesn't though it's kind of just been, been lost to time and I, I do wonder and we were talking about like um uh knives out and how we're watching this and it's like what the hell <laughs> it's just so it's like a it's more than an homage isn't it right parts of it it feels yeah. like very like oh did, has ryan johnson ever talked about this so i i did some quick searching and he i mean he's he's very on his surface uh a self-admitted like you know no shame whatsoever postmodern guy right and he did a twitter thread um back when knives out came out of uh, a collection of movie posters in his home and he had it it was just like movie poster after movie poster of like classic 60s 70s 80s murder mysteries and right in the middle of this thread i'm realizing now is death trap (laughs) along with obviously clue death in the nile evil under the sun and some of more well-known titles uh so i mean it makes sense uh it's it's very on the nose but at the same time like it's uh it i feel like it i mean the twitter thread enough like it's got you know tons of comments and retweets you think that that would make i thought a lot of people would start like rediscovering this kind of niche subgenre of like quirky uh uh you know very you know comedic but also very twist and turny um yeah. thriller murder mystery style of movie but i mean instead netflix just gave them hundreds of millions to make sequels so <laughs> 400 million dollars to make two movies ridiculous um <laughs> What's interesting too with Death Trap, it's uh, it's never. I don't think it's ever come up in my readings like postmodern film, mm. and it's hyper. I mean, super meta, right? Oh, to yeah. the point where it's yeah. almost like uh, cutesy meta. I like think maybe that's why it's not like doesn't have a lot of yeah. um, clout in the academic world for postmodern film. But like, yeah, I mean, you can't get more meta than what this is doing. 
a movie about a play that's about a play uh, and the people involved, you know, are trying to write it. It's like, yeah, it's so many different levels. I mean, what, did you guys think this aged pretty well? I think it's a little too much like Sleuth, and I think it's a little too much like Noise is Off. Yeah. And oh. I think that the fact that it's a little too much like both of those, and I think Christopher Reeve being in it, as much as I love him and as much as he was a hero of mine growing up, I think it hurts having Superman in your movie, not being Superman. That's yeah. not fair to Christopher Reeve. It's not. I'm not saying it is. Life sucks sometimes, and that's, <laughs> that's a fact of life. And I think that this is one of the reasons he was trying to do this film was to get away from Superman. Yeah. But it's so sleuthy and it's so noises offy. And if you're going to watch a Michael Caine movie that's like sleuth, you're going to watch sleuth. Yeah. And Christopher Reeve is ironically, and Michael Caine are both in noises off. And those are both, and I like this film, but I think those are both better films because yeah, the third act kind of, yeah, the third act is not mess. strong. It's not, and not only that, but I was not, I was not a fan of whatever Diane Cannon was doing. What uh, is that about? <laughs> oh my gosh. There's a great quote from her in a profile she did, um, while this movie was being filmed, um, with New York times. And she, she says with like deadpan sarcasm, um, when asked to describe her character in this new movie, she's making, she says a bit of hysteric. She absolutely serves this man. She is married to everything in life centers around him. I don't get a lot of parts like that. (laughs) (laughs) So like on the one hand, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, there's something just really over the top. That is hard to swallow, even in a movie that is very over the top. And yet, I don't know. I, I, Coming out of it, like I, I, I love Michael Caine. I love Reeve, um, but she, I think she was the more memorable. Like I was, yeah. I wanted, I, I wanted her to like, I wanted her to like have the part of whatever the stupid psychic has at the end of the. Like, I, like, I did think she was coming back at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah I thought so too. Uh, yeah, I, I, it it felt like she was in a di- her and the psychic felt like they were in different films, and, and, <laughs> and maybe maybe the. I mean, I wish I, I I have seen the play to know, but maybe the play is more comedic. Uh, mm-hmm. then, and yeah. maybe the, the, the way Kane and Reeve are playing it, that comedy's lost. Maybe, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Cause I mean, they just, co- they just contrived to kill his wife and I know they're cracking jokes, but they just don't come off the style of jokes like Diane Cannon screaming uncontrollably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she got it. She got the vibe and, uh, <laughs> Reeve and Kane, uh, Kane, hmm. I couldn't deal with Kane for some reason in this movie. Really? Yeah, I, I know. Like, I get that it's hammy. It's supposed to be hammy. Uh, but he's just, it's just, he's too much. He's, he's a, too unmoored. And I'm just like, I can't. It, it's he's hard a to dick even. Right like, from get, the get go. Yeah. So you yeah. can't root yeah. for him at all. You should he's try to at least give him a couple lines where you kind of at least kind of root for him. Well, he's not killed. Right. Right. He's not at the end. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That might be the issue. He's just, he's depressed. He's mo, oh, mo is me. Or he's just violently yelling at her. <laughs> Openly yeah. in front of like a quote unquote guest that she doesn't know is not, you know, is not really a guest. He's, she's, he's there for a reason. He's just like, and she's like, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And he's like, just shut down. And it's like, it's, you know, it's, what if yeah. I recasted Leslie Nielsen? <laughs> With that, Cause I was, I was envisioning that, especially yeah. the scene where he was like, uh, out of nowhere, Krista Reeve shows up and talking about the play, and he just starts like yelling at the fireplace. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes. I'm just like, oh man, where's Leslie when you need him? Like he would have been perfect for this because that, yeah. that amps up the comedy way high. Right. Right. 
and it's just kind of folds back in on itself. You're like, oh, this is fun. This is enjoyable. But yeah, I think there's a weird middle ground here that like, it doesn't really, uh, for me, it didn't really like find solid grounds. And to me, the third act is just like the other two acts. I don't know. What are you guys talking about? It's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I was more willing to like strap in for the ride of the first two twists. And it's like, there's, there is this threshold and I mean, it seems like you guys are making the argument and I think it's a fair argument that like that threshold is surpassed like within <laughs> the opening minutes of the film. But I don't know, there was something that was keeping it grounded for me where it was kind of ping ponging between more clue vibes mm-hmm. and more sleuth vibes. Um, but I think that ultimately uh, the, the part that, that, that really kept me centered was uh, and it, they just kind of ruined it in the third act, I think, was this like secret relationship between yeah. um, uh, Kane and Reeves' characters. And I think it's unfortunate. I mean, it's a product of its time, right? Early 80s. But mm-hmm. like, as they mentioned in The Celluloid Closet, um, uh, that uh, you know, the kiss was booed by preview audiences. Uh, it, you know, a producer said to Time Magazine that they estimated... Um, uh, that the the kiss uh, cost them ten million dollars in ticket sales, in, or something like that. Even when it was still a hit, like that's insane. Like we had a movie with a gay kiss on screen in 1982 that was a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, it's a footnote, and maybe deservedly so because it's not a great film. But like, there is something that Reeve is doing here that's actually not unlike. I mean, you bring up the Superman kind of curse. Uh, but I, I also think that's something maybe Ryan Johnson was doing. I mean, re, Superman in a white sweater in a murder mystery, and then Captain America in a white sweater in a murder mystery. Like, like a sociopath, true, yeah. Right. Um, so I like there, that sweater, though. Oh, it's a great sweater. <laughs> that's a wonderful. Yeah. That's, that's all. That's 100% walls, what that is. Yeah, yeah. Spare no expense. Um, and so I think that there it's one of those movies where it's a curio, but there's like, it checks just enough entertainment boxes for me and cultural touchstone boxes where it's like, I, I like it, but it is as timeout said, and it did a a whole like anniversary kind of recap of the film uh, for its 30th. Um, Ultimately it is a movie that is just too clever for its own good. And Ryan Johnson managed to, I do think Knives Out is a fantastic film and he managed to kind of just edge on the, uh, an air on the side of, um, you know, a, a solid and tightly wound third act, but death trap just, it's one too many goofs <laughs> for its, for its own good at the end. Yeah. Well, Knives, um, Knives Out has the luxury of a great character and Daniel Craig's character true, you know, that true. can carry that movie because, you know, he's, controlling the scene he's doing the classic you know who done it at the end explaining everything yes um, you don't have that here it's that Perot character yeah right you don't have that here yeah. and and, and Anna think, yeah. character too yes yeah and 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 in death trap um i think what would would since this is my first time watching it what pulls me along is just the mystery like okay what's happening i don't i don't know if that'll hold up a second viewing or a third viewing because like when you mentioned clue you go back and watch clue again you're just right. you know, all the lines the funny moments it's it yeah. right i mean i don't know if death trap upon second or third watch would hold up 
to a to a, a first watch for me at least. So um, in that regard, I can understand why too clever for, too clever for its own good, or maybe just you know the 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 uh, errors or the um, the 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 cracks start showing through uh, when you when you go revisit it again. Would we? Uh, would you guys recommend uh, Sorcerer to people? Who would you recommend oh. Sorcerer to? Uh, people who love film, um, like yeah. yeah, people who love film and or um, Camus, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's actually some Camus in there. Absolutely, <laughs> people determine to determine if I'm going to be their friend. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. A, okay. Taste yeah. test, exactly. purity yeah. test. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. Do you do you have fun having a bad time? That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you enjoy misery? How much do you enjoy your own existential confusion and misery? Because if you love it, check yeah. out Sorcerer in 1977. <laughs> um, Mike's, what do you guys got coming up on your podcast here soon? On season 13, right? Yes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're five or six episodes into season 13. So I think tom- I think tomorrow our new episode comes out. We got The Drop, uh, the 2014 film with uh, Gandolfini. And oh, yeah, um, okay. oh, I sort of remember Tom that. Hardy, yeah. And then we, we got phone booth and uh, no escape, which we did no escape before he passed, before Leo oh, passed. Nice. So, yeah. Right before he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, I think we're rounding out uh, with uh, Eastern Promises. Uh, oh, nice. And we're going, we're going to, Mike's never seen this. Uh, he, we're we're going to watch the 2005 uh, Reefer Madness. Oh, very, very cool. Yeah. yeah. So that's awesome. Has there been a recent film you guys done? That you're like, this is this is the forgotten cinema classic that everybody's got to see. Ooh, go ahead, Mike. What do we have? What, do, what, what, would, what would count? A classic? I would say Strange Days because that just hit all yes. the right boxes for me. Yeah, cool. That was my my kind of near post apocalyptic. This is what the late '90s is totally going to look like. Futuristic <laughs> kind of like thing that I had never heard of. I watched. I, I loved it. You can't get it anywhere. Field had to get oh, it through. I know. Means Real. that I, we oh, won't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh God, strange days. What you gotta do. <laughs> I, that was probably the big one for me. Nice. Awesome, um, guys. Thanks for being on. We appreciate it. It's been oh, a good thanks, conversation. Thank you. Thanks for yeah. having us. Thanks for yeah. I love we love talking movies. So, um, you know, it's always a good time. <laughs> awesome. Appreciate it, uh, everybody out there. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Mm-hmm.